Perverted, brought to you by Sputnik Africa. This weekend on the 11th of November, we commemorated Remembrance Day, a day that is dedicated to the fallen in World War I. And in today's episode of Afroverdict, we will delve into history's untold narratives and shed light on the profound impact they've had on our world. I'm your host, Victor Anakin, and on this solemn occasion of Remembrance Day, we remember the sacrifices made by so many and explore a lesser-known aspect of history, specifically Africa's role in World War I and the destructive impact this war of colonial powers had on the continent. First joining me is Professor Macharia Munene, a distinguished historian whose expertise lies in the colonial and post-colonial history of Africa. He has dedicated years to studying the complexities and narratives surrounding Africa's involvement in World War I. Professor Munene, welcome to Afroverdict. Thank you. Let's start with the role of Africa in World War One. You know, this weekend we just uh, commemorated Remembrance Day. Yes. What was the role of Africa in World War One, and how did it differ from the role of other regions involved in the conflict? In general, the role of Africans in uh, what they used to call the Great War before it was baptized World War One was supportive, like the Carrier Corps of the white people who fight each other in Africa. Uh, rarely would they allow Africans to do the shooting, but to do it was a support uh, arrangement, uh, particularly in Eastern Africa and even Southwest Africa, uh, South Africa and Southwest Africa, where the Germans were. Um, the fighting was contrary to the understanding that Berlin in um, 1884-85, that white people will not kill each other in Africa. But since the war started, wherever there was um, Germany and the British, they forgot what they had agreed on, and they started killing each other. And the issue to many Africans at the time, uh, some confused and were happy that the white people were killing each other, meaning that they were going to get away, to go away, to go home, and get out of Africa. That did not happen. Instead, they were recruited to carry luggage for white people, Germans and Britons, uh, to fight each other. They could not trust the, the Africans with the guns. So they just carried the uh, luggage. And that's why they were called carrier corps. And uh, they are states, uh, an estate in Nairobi and a place in Dar es Salaam called carrier corps in memory of the work that those people did. Uh, as being carrier core. Now, when World War II broke out, the environment was different. Uh, first, the main imperial powers were under pressure and were being beaten up by the Japanese, uh, particularly in Asia. And uh, that's when the Japanese were running around talking about Asia for Asians and uh, colonial imperial powers should get out. In that condition, the imperial powers were desperate, and therefore they had no inhibition asking for African fighting ability. So there was that contrast that in World War II, the Africans did actually fight to save the empires, um, as it were, and gained quite a bit of the experience fighting and also observing the behavior of the imperial powers in uh, Syria's war. So in the, the Great War, World War One. There was little fighting by Africans by design. They were designed not to fight. 
in World War II, they were recruited to fight because it was necessary to save the empire. Thanks a lot, Prof, for the background. And how did the outbreak of World War I affect the colonial powers in Africa and how did they respond to the conflict? Except for the Germans who lost their colonies, uh, the British and the French and to some extent Belgium benefited from the war in terms of colonial possessions. Because when the Woodrow Wilson pressed for the creation of the League of Nations, one of the works that was uh, was adapted was to make the League of Nations some sort of a, a supervisory body for former German colonies that were divided between the British and the French. For instance, in um, Togo, the, you had the British one side, the French one side, and they just put it in in the middle. So you have French co- uh, Togo and French and British uh, Togo. Same thing with Cameroon. So you have French Cameroon, British Cameroon. They just grabbed and split the territory. Where the main um, the main power was one, as in German East Africa, and it was surrounded by British claims. So the British were the ones to take that one. The only thing that happened was to cut off two provinces in German East Africa and for sentimental reason allowed Belgium to administer them on behalf of the League of Nations. In Southwest Africa, uh, South Africa was allowed to administer it as if it was part of South Africa. But in theory, they were all operating under the League of Nations. So they essentially increased their colonial uh, possessions under the League of Nations, and they benefited that way. Um, there were some subsequent problems, particularly with the Italians, who claimed they did not benefit as much as they had been promised because the reason the Italians um, joined the war on the side of the British and the French because they were promised more by the British and the French than the Germans could promise. Although the Germans were Italian allies, or Italy was the, an ally of Germany before the war. Uh, so they, it was the um, deal cutting. And once um, the war was over and they got whatever they got, and Mussolini came into office in 1922 by simply walking into Rome, uh, started uh, grumbling that uh, Italy did not get what it wanted or as much as what it wanted. And so there were a few minor um, uh, territorial adjustments to please Mussolini. That's how Kenya uh, lost part of its uh, claim, uh, Jubaland, which was then given to Mussolini in Italy and became part of the Italian Somaliland. Um, of course, the League of Nations turned out to be a very weak organization, did not do as expected, and it, uh, because of its weakness, it probably might have contributed to encouraging Adolf Hitler and Mussolini uh, to mount the aggression against everybody. It might also have uh, encouraged Japan to become more and more militaristic, um, in part because it could not trust white people anymore. Uh, during the Versailles discussions, uh, the Japanese had requested that there be a clause on racial equality, uh, but then the big Western powers refused. Um, and Japan was hurt very, very badly by that because it was an ally in the war. It helped to defeat the Germans, and yet there it was, um, uh, mistreated. So it decided to become militaristic. 
And once it's probably realized that the League of Nations was a toothless organ anyway, so they build up its own military capacity, which might have contributed to uh, the outbreak of World War II. The Italians were still smarting over having been defeated by the Ethiopians in 1896 at Adowa, and Mussolini was very angry that the Ethiopians tended to celebrate Adowa every year, and so he wanted to stop those kind of celebrations, which reminded him of defeat when he, he was a young man during that time, so he didn't want to be reminded of that. But interestingly, when asked what he was doing, his explanation was peculiar. He said that he was doing the British and the French a favor by invading and eliminating the independence of Ethiopia because it was a bad example to other black people to see the Ethiopia being run by blacks while they themselves are not. So eliminating Ethiopia would do a favor to the British and the French because it will eliminate a bad example uh, to that. So there, there are those things that can see the, so the outcome of World War One or the Great War was the enhancement of colonial control uh, by the British and uh, the French at the expense of the Germans. And that may explain what in the 1930s there was desire or statement by some Britons and others to um, appease Adolf Hitler by returning some of the colonies that had been taken away. Uh, all these things were happening at the time. So overall, the League of Nations was very poor, uh, very weak. And it's been argued that part of the reason it was so weak was because two major powers of the day were not members of the League of Nations. The United States by design, because the Senate refused to ratify it, and the news, newly created Soviet Union uh, uh, by exclusion. Uh, so you have two major powers, not part of this international organization, and hence the supposed weakness and instability. Very interesting. Thanks a lot, Prof. Let's now take a deeper dive into World War One. Could you list or maybe talk to us about some of these significant battles and campaigns that took place in Africa during World War One? And how did they contribute to the overall outcome of the war? In Southern Africa, there was um, the South African contingency led by Jan Christian Smart and um, fighting his German Southwest Africa. And there they defeated. Uh, the Germans were defeated there, so they stopped being an, uh, an issue. The Smart moved to East Africa, which was a bigger field, British East Africa, and it looked as if the British in British East Africa needed some extra help. So you have the South Africans coming and the major battles taking place in around the Taita Taveta area in Kenya and then down in South Africa, I mean in the German East Africa. The coastal area was uh, where they, and they had um, an interesting general who is the German general who actually said he was never defeated properly. He waited until the, the loss. Uh, the official mistress uh, before he could be dealt with. I believe that was General Paul von Leto Forbeck. Yeah, he was fighting in Eastern Africa. He gave his counterparts a hard time. Um, but, uh, so you have this reinforcement from South Africa. Um, but uh, what people remember here mostly is not how they were uh, fighting each other, but uh, the fact that um, Africans were busy carrying luggage and all that. 
So the memorable events uh, around um, Taita Taveta area, in fact, there is one or two little monuments somewhere uh, in memory of that uh, engagement. Um, the When the fighting started, um, with the British bombarding parts of Tanga in German East Africa, the Germans complained uh, about it. Um, state for the provision in the Berlin Treaty that whites in the United States to press Britain not to fight and not to engage in them, to honor the treaty. And the U.S. Uh, gave an excuse as well to never ratify the treaty, therefore it is not bound by it. In Western Africa, the French, I think they had uh, some, a few uh, people, particularly Senegalese, uh, involved in a little engagements there and there. Prof, you explained to us that African soldiers were mostly used as part of the carrier corps. What challenges do you think or do you know that they faced in doing so? Well, a lot of them died because of diseases or hardships. But uh, what people remember, not so much how many died carrying luggage, is what happened after the war. The Africans were dispossessed of their land extra dispossession. And there was the white settlers who had made arrangements with the British government that their numbers, the soldiers, the white soldiers would be rewarded with land in East Africa. And they were because um, the soldier settlement scheme under the management of Edward General, Edward Northey, uh, had a lot of people kicked out of their homes and then instituting uh, aid programs for the white, the settlers who were very poor in farming. So the infrastructural development that would help them to make a living. And to do that, you had deliberate poverty creation under development uh, uh, to stop people from the white settlers, more sufficient and um, rich. And their aid that came to them was not only by having infrastructure, railroads constructed where they were. It was mainly by forcing Africans out of their homes and work areas to go and work in plantations, etc. plantations. That then um, they were undermined and uh, started creating problems. The consequence of that were political movements and agitations by Africans against the new policies of taxation, over taxation, uh, the new policies of dispossession and uh, the new policies of not only separating families and making that making sure that men are not at home to do what they should be doing to promote the family or to promote the economy, they went to become servants and tenants in their own lands. So the consequence yeah. was devastating under development which spanned its own um, uh, political challenges. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure that some African countries can still see the effects of that devastating war even today. How, do, how did World War I change the power dynamics between the European colonial powers in Africa? Well, I mean, you've spoken about that, but uh, when you explained that um, Britain and France were the main benefactors. But what what long-term consequences did this have for the continent? It created a dependency 
sense of hopelessness. And it took a little time because in many African countries, the Africans took time to understand their new environment. Because once they were conquered, and they were conquered by 1914, as conquered people, they had to reflect how come they got beat. And when they reflected, um, they adopted about two or so strategies. One, to accept the conquest and then ask how come it was done, then what should be done. And there are those who accepted almost in total the new reality that they were properly beaten. And the sovereignty and legitimacy had been moved from Africa to some European capitals in London, in Brussels, in Paris, and Rome, and to some extent Lisbon. So the independence of the African peoples, wherever they were, was removed, destroyed, and they had to accept that reality and then decide which way. There were those who accepted everything and they were not questioning everything because one of the conditions and the teachings of the new colonial state was that Africans should not think and that they should not have a mind of their own on anything. And there were those who did, yes. And the missionaries did a pretty good job of conditioning people not to think or not to uh, believe in their values. That one they did very well. Yet within that group, there were those who remained questioning. They accepted, yes, there is a new reality. But then they started looking at the pronounced policies and doctrines and the practice on the ground. And so when they looked at that, they, they started questioning the contradictions between policy and the, and the practice. This explains the rise of independent churches, which had first of all accepted the essence of European Christianity as brought to them. But then they questioned the practice which did not match the claims. And so you have these independent churches, they remained essentially Christian without the European cultural attributes that were very evident. So there were those people. Then there were those, a few of those people who managed to learn how to read and write. And they liked reading the Bible because uh, the Old Testament was uh, something they could relate to. The New Testament was something, but the Old Testament they could relate to. So when the missionaries told them that you should not have uh, many wives, they could always turn to the Old Testament and say, but Abraham had three wives. Solomon had a thousand or so. So what are you talking about? So the cultural differences became, uh, those who are thinking became uh, very clear. Um, in politics, they noticed the, pro the, the professed position was different from the practice on the ground. And some of them, very few of them, started raising questions and addressing London itself. They said, this is what you say, but this is what we are experiencing. So you are people on the ground undermining your own policies or something like that. So the agitations came. But at that time, there was no questioning the legitimacy of the colonial state at that time. In the 1930s, there was a growth uh, of the questioning mind no longer saying that the policies were good, but the practice bad, it started coming out, no, the policies themselves were rotten. Um, so we have that in the 1930s coming. So what 
ever happened is that those who got a bit of uh, schooling, they learned how to read and write, and they then committed the sin of continuing to think when they should not have been thinking. And so when they, you have that other group of people, those who totally accepted the new condition, the, the new environment, and those who accepted it on condition, uh, conditionally, so that they, they would challenge the implementation of the pronounced policy. So that came up after the world, uh, the, the Great War. And it continued, the more they were made subjected to suffering, the more they questioned what was going on. Um, when in around 1923, in Kenya, that is, um, the court, the Supreme Court of the day decreed that Africans had no right to any part of the land. They did not, they could not own because it was all crown land and nothing else. That angered a lot of people. And you can see even the ones who want to be compliant, then end up being, um, troublemakers as far as the colonial government was concerned. And you have similar incidents in other, can in, in other colonies. But in some, it was very clear what was going on. Yeah, definitely. Prof, uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, thanks a lot for this brief walk through, through the, the beginning of the 20th century, through right to the middle, and for, you know, uh, taking a, an interesting insight on some of the, you know, outcomes of that war on the African continent. My pleasure. Professor Monene, it was an honor to have you. Thank you for giving us this opportunity to almost relive these uh, really terrible pages of history. Now, with this knowledge in mind, our second guest is Professor Roger Sartol, a renowned political scientist with a focus on Southern Africa. Throughout his career, he has extensively researched the socio-political repercussions of colonial wars and their far-reaching effects. Now, you know, all of this makes me wonder, how did this conflict of colonial powers that really unfolded in some way on the African continent as well, how did it affect the societies of African nations? Let's invite Professor Roger Southall, Professor of Sociology at Witwatersrand University in South Africa, to find out. Prof, welcome. Thank you for joining me today. In what ways were African societies forced to participate in the war efforts of World War One, both directly and indirectly? Well, directly, of course, there were very many thousands of Africans recruited into uh, the imperial troops, uh, both for France and for um, uh, uh, Britain. Um, indirectly, of course, uh, Africans contributed all sorts of um, uh, necessary crops to the war effort, whether it be cocoa, or, for instance, from what was then the Gold Coast, now Ghana, or Nigeria. Um, and elsewhere, they're also providing raw materials for the, for the war effort. Those, I think, are the major two contributions. Mm, and of course, like you said, they contributed to the manpower eventually. How did the experiences of African soldiers in World War I shape their perceptions of themselves and their communities upon returning home? Well, I think it was, it was profound, and I think historians accept that, because uh, for the first time, Africans, uh, well, for a start, they were largely excluded from uh, being able to carry arms, 
because, uh, for instance, it was felt that uh, having Africans with experience of arms would subsequently provide a threat to the empire. But at the same time, when it was found necessary, they at times did, in fact, carry rifles on the Western Front. Uh, um, elsewhere, Africans played a crucial role. For instance, when General Smuts was leading British troops in what was German Southwest Africa, uh, sorry, German uh, East Africa, which is now Tanzania, Africans recruited in significant numbers, although again, not in a combat role. But they were used widely as so-called native labor to as porters um, to carry all the stuff that uh, armies have to carry around. So they played a very, a very significant role. But there was always an awareness that uh, Africans with military experience could turn that to the empire's disadvantage at the end of the war. Yeah, this is a good build-up to my next question. What can we learn about the nature of European imperialism from the way that African resources and labor were exploited during World War I? Well, I think we look back and say it was extremely cynical. It was used for the interests of the empires, not for the interests of the African people themselves. It was situational. Um, Africans who signed up did so because it offered them uh, some sort of opportunity um, to earn a wage. Um, and I suppose for young men going into a conflict, we know sadly how many regarded it on all sides as, a, as an adventure initially. I think was not anticipated the way in which uh, African troops, in, uh, when they were engaging in conflict alongside white troops um, from the various colonial powers and the other colonies such as Australia and Canada, um, found that they were not inferior. Um, and that they resented the inequality to which they were subjected so frontally. Remember that if you were coming from uh, a colony like the Gold Coast, Ghana, or Nigeria, most Africans did not had not really come into direct contact with whites. That, that was reserved for a relatively handful of Africans uh, in the towns and so on, or occasional meetings with a district commissioner. But once you're in an army, you, you come into very direct conflict with um, white superiors and you're subjected to strict discipline and everything. And I think this undoubtedly fueled racial resentment, which then feeded over into uh, the nationalist cause. Yeah, and to what extent did the global impact of World War I contribute to the emergence of pan-Africanism and other forms of transnational solidarity amongst African nations? Crucial, I think, because it also led to the connections or strengthening, strengthening of connections of uh, Africans from Africa and uh, those people of an African heritage from the United States and to a certain extent Canada. Um, and they met in different venues, but I think it increased the awareness of Pan-Africanism um, and the fact that there was a sense of unity across American blacks and Africans elsewhere and their struggle for um, independence. Of course, there had long been before this connections between various activists um, in the United States and in the West Indies with activists from, Ameri uh, from Africa 
although these were still relatively early days. And that was that process was, of course, to uh, develop and end up or to, to culminate in the famous Manchester Pan-Africanist Conference of 1945. Thanks, Prof. What actions were taken by colonial powers to suppress dissent and resistance among African populations during the war? And what were the long-term implications of these policies? Um, well, I would stretch my memory to uh, recall um, some of the details, but of course there was the suppression of the um, various uh, movements which arose in some colonies in protest against the increased disciplinary measures taken by um, colonial governments to increase output of crash crop, cash crops. For instance, in Malawi, there was an uprising uh, conducted in quasi-religious terms led by uh, an individual called John Chalembe, which led to re uh, very direct repression in what was then colonial Nyasaland. Um, I'm sure there were many other instances which I, my memory fails me with at the moment. But I, th I think that it, um, it led to a much increased awareness of Africanness in opposition to the colonial powers. Yeah, absolutely. Finally, how did the end of World War I shape the trajectory of African decolonization movements? And what role did the war play in shaping African aspirations for independence? Well, I think for a start, it sharpened the sense of uh, connectedness with the empire, so with the imperial economies, so that after the uh, First World War, for instance, there was an immediate boom um, in the price of cash crops because all of a sudden there was uh, increased demand in the imperial world for uh, stuff which had been in short supply during the war. Um, and then it was very soon followed by, in the early 1920s, by a crash in the market. Uh, and when people have been excited by price rises and then suddenly they're denied them, I think this increased a lot of uh, economic resentment. And of course, the, in many ways, the depression which followed in the 1920s uh, continued on through the 1930s as well. And I think that sharpened economic resentment as an important backdrop to an increasing political consciousness. Although, of course, the political consciousness did not really come to fruition until after the Second World War, um, highlighted, of course, by riots in uh, the Gold Coast, uh, that stroke Ghana, in 1948, which led to the uh, grant of self-government, the first in, in British um, sub-Saharan Africa in 1948. Sorry, in, uh, yeah, yeah self-government in um, the riots in 1948 led to the first self-government in 1951 under Kwame Nkrumah. And that concludes this episode of AfroVerdict, centered around Africa's role in World War One. Our sincere gratitude goes to Professor Macharia Munene and Professor Roger Southall for their invaluable insights and contribution to our understanding of this often overlooked chapter of history. Now, as we reflect on Remembrance Day, it is crucial to remember the countless lives lost, the bravery displayed and the devastating effects of war on the African continent and on people in general. So by shedding light on these untold narratives, I hope to foster a deeper appreciation for the interconnectedness of global events and the lasting legacies they leave behind. 
Likewise, I call on every single one of you listening to continue exploring the rich tapestry of history, to seek out forgotten stories and to remember the lessons of the past. And in case you've missed a part of this podcast, feel free to rewind on popular podcasts and platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Deezer, CastBox, PocketCast, Afropods, as well as Podcast Addict. If you're more of a reader, then uh, take a look at the Sputnik Africa website and enjoy the numerous articles we have there. For shorter digest, though, go ahead to our Sputnik Africa Telegram page, TikTok account, and other socials to get the juiciest information from across the globe. Thank you for listening, everyone. I'm Victor Anakin, and I'm wishing you a day filled with remembrance and reflection. Take care, and I'll see you next time. Afro Verdict, brought to you by Sputnik Africa.